Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Poll after poll tells us that people have lost faith in government and in big institutions to solve the nation's or even the world's problems. As that disconnect grows, and it will likely continue to, we're looking more and more to local-centric, often nonprofit institutions to do the heavy lifting. But what will those nonprofits look like? As donors today want rapid and measurable results, metrics, and an entrepreneurial spirit and business approach that will make them anything other than your father's nonprofit. To help us understand this transition and what may well be the future of nonprofits as a growing instrument of public policy, I'm joined by my guest, Kathleen Kelly Janis. Kathleen is an award-winning social entrepreneur, lawyer, and lecturer at Stanford, where she teaches international human rights and social entrepreneurship. She's also a co-founder of Spark and is chair of the board of the Directors of Accountability Council, a startup human rights organization. It is my pleasure to welcome Kathleen Kelly Janis here to talk about her new book, Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. It's an honor. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the kind of traditional nonprofit, the old-fashioned kind of nonprofit that I think people kind of grew up understanding, and a little bit about how you began to see when you began the research on this book, how they've started to change. It's a, it's a good question, and I loved in your introduction how you talked about my your, your father's nonprofit, because really that is how... I became inspired to do nonprofit work in the first place. My dad, Brian Kelly, has been involved in nonprofits in the Napa Valley for um, decades now and has sat on dozens of nonprofit boards. And so from a very young age, I became aware as we were volunteering at soup kitchens and, and at health clinics for low income workers that you know, it was important to be supporting those beneficiaries and to do that volunteer work, but that we had to also make sure that we were supporting the conditions so that nonprofits could do that work in the first place. And so sitting around the dinner table at home, we would often have conversations about how nonprofits that my mom or dad were involved in might be struggling. And they were you know, constantly working on fundraisers or, um, you know, board work to try and to try and keep those nonprofits afloat. And so, you know, when we think about those kind of traditional nonprofits that I was exposed to, certainly growing up, you know, we think about checkbook charity, where nonprofits would solicit donors and um, donors would write a check and um, and then they would do their work in a very traditional service oriented way where they were um, supporting the most vulnerable populations uh, by providing services that they would need to help them get by. So a soup kitchen is a great example, helping provide people who wouldn't otherwise have access to meals, uh, that, that, that food to help them sustain themselves. Um, but over the years, and what my study has been on is social entrepreneurship, this new form of attacking social problems, which really looks at not just addressing the immediate need, although there are many good organizations that are doing that work and that's important work, 
But after many years, I think nonprofit leaders realized that, wait a second here, we can't just be putting a Band-Aid on these problems. We can't just be providing food for someone who is homeless. We need to be thinking about how can we solve the underlying issues that are causing that person's homelessness in the first place. So how can we think about tackling the education system so that person um, can get a good job? How can we think about providing job training to help shift the imbalances that create that injustice in the first place? Um, And those are the nonprofits that I have been studying for my new book, Social Startup Success. How much of the motivation for this among people that are engaged in this today and looking at it from this new perspective, how much of the motivation comes from the fact that the traditional avenues, the traditional public policy avenues to address these things in the past are simply absent today and it really becomes more incumbent on nonprofit institutions to address these things? Well, the way I think about social entrepreneurship is that it's really providing a service where government can't meet the needs of the most vulnerable populations or people who have suffered injustice. So nonprofits uh, that are doing work on the ground with communities have access to those communities in a way to... um, that they're small and nimble and can test out new ideas that maybe government uh, wouldn't have otherwise uh, have access to. Um, Let me give you an example um, of a story of an organization that I think is, is really illuminates this point. And Hot Bread Kitchen is an organization that I feature in the book. Um, It's a, a job training program for low-income women out of Harlem in New York, founded by a woman named Jessamine Rodriguez. And Jessamine started this program because she saw that low-income women were having a hard time getting jobs in the food industry. And so she started this training program uh, that would help them get the skills that they needed by going through uh, the six-week program. And then at the end of it, they would have jobs. But as a way to sustain the organization itself, Jessamine was able to bake the bread in the, that, that the women were, um, that were, the women were making in these classes and then go and sell them to wholesalers like Whole Foods or JetBlue And then they also had a cafe that was selling the baked goods uh, that was uh, also generating income. And so through her training program, using this innovative model, Jessamine was able to not only train these women and uh, put more low-income women into the food industry and give them jobs, but she was also able to sustain the revenue from the, uh, the sustain the organization using the revenue mm-hmm. from all the sales for the bread to help um, create the program. So this is an example of a program that the government is not nimble enough to test or to pilot. Um, and so we really, as a society, rely on these incredibly innovative leaders who are working at the grassroots level who can test these ideas and scale them um, and be really the incubation arm, in a way, of government. 
ultimately, if we want to scale big ideas, we have to get buy-in from government. We have to get policy in place. The, the government of the city of New York, for example, has an annual budget of $22 billion alone. That's just one city. There isn't a foundation in this world that is giving away close to that amount. So that gives you the context that we can't rely on philanthropic dollars alone to solve massive social problems. But we can test ideas that may eventually make it into public policy that will then be able to help improve people's lives. And one of the ways that these things do become part of public policy is the degree to which their impact can be measured, not only in in a sustainability sense, as you were talking about before, but really some kind of ongoing metrics, not unlike a business, by which these these nonprofits really can, can measure how much success they have. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a huge trend in the nonprofit world that I think differs from my father's nonprofit that um, with the evolution of, um, I think, particularly in the 90s and early 2000s, when we had all this new tech money and we had a lot of new successful business people who were in the philanthropic world and creating huge foundations like Bill Gates and uh, Pyramidia of eBay. Um, and these folks were requiring a business approach to the nonprofit world and what they meant, what they interpreted that as by um, using data to show whether an organization was in fact having an impact. So these these philanthropies were actually having a really important role in pushing nonprofits to think about their impact, not only in terms of outputs or the number of people who might be participating in their programs, but also outcomes. How are these programs actually having an impact on people's lives? Because what I found when I went out and did a hundred interviews of social entrepreneurs for my my book is that the organizations are measuring impact not because they're trying to satisfy uh, philanthropic requests, although that, that may have been some of the initial impetus behind this trend in the field, but these nonprofit leaders truly care about whether they're having an impact because they don't have the resources to be wasting time. They need to know whether, um, you know, their education program, for example, is helping a student to uh, increase their assessment tests um, scores. And so they actually look at that really critically and test the counterfactual and uh, try and understand um, from every single angle is what they're doing actually making a difference. And that's really exciting because we only have limited dollars to, to, to put towards uh, nonprofit causes. About 2% of the, of the GDP in the U.S. alone goes to uh, philanthropic causes. Um, so this is a really small sliver um, of money that is trying to solve some of the world's most pressing problems like climate change, like racial injustice, criminal injustice system. Um, and so we need, to, we need to be as efficient as possible and know whether our work is actually having an impact if we want to make a difference. How have these needs changed the kind of leadership 
that is needed for nonprofits today? It's a good question um, because I think in society we tend to put our entrepreneurs or our social entrepreneurs or nonprofit leaders on this pedestal. You know, we associate Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg or Microsoft with Bill Gates. But the reality is there are thousands and thousands of people who have made those companies possible. It's not one individual alone that can create a product or build a movement. And the same is true in the nonprofit world. We have all of these awards um, and fellowships that uh, spotlight the, the, the hero leader who has championed a cause and, and really made a difference. But when I dug down in my research and talked with these teams, in fact, it's not the hero leaders that are making a difference or the organizations with hero leaders are, that are making a difference. It's the organizations that are led in a collective leadership team-like format that are scaling more quickly. I, I think about what it would be like to work for someone who was taking all of the credit and, and taking the, the spotlight, and I think it wouldn't be very much fun. Um, and so these leaders that I interviewed are actually super creative about empowering their staff and making them feel a part of the mission of the organization and part of the mission of the, of the cause. In the book, I talk about... Um, how it's very similar to the Nordstrom story. Jim Nordstrom, when he started his company, he realized that the most important people on his staff were not his CEO, his executive team. The most important people on his staff were the people on the front lines, the salespeople who had access to the customers because they knew exactly what was happening with those customers and what those customers wanted. And so he reversed the hierarchical pyramid and turned it on its head and made those salespeople um, empowered to really have a say in the organization because they were the ones that were on the front lines. Similarly, a lot of the nonprofits that I interviewed and have worked with have done the same, and it's a really powerful way to uh, bring everybody together for a social cause, and it just feels like the right kind of way to run an organization. On the other hand, given the competition for dollars out there, given that there are so many nonprofits, so many needs, so many entrepreneurial efforts that are going on, many of which you detail in the book, the need for profile, for a hero leader, if you will, seems greater than ever in order to be competitive within that space. You're absolutely right. And it is this kind of fine balance that these entrepreneurs walk where they, they do have to take the spotlight. And what I found with many of them is they, they do it reluctantly and that, that, that it's not part of their natural person to, to, to take all of the credit. Um, and so they, they use tricks like they, um, they make sure that they put their beneficiaries up on stage to talk with them. There was an amazing organization they interviewed in New York called Green City Force, and um, they do green jobs um, for low-income um, inner-city kids. And 
when they were asked to speak at the Clinton Initiative, Lizbeth Shepard, their executive director, said, yes, I'll speak, but I'll only speak if you let two of my kids speak with me. So I think the onus is also on leadership to say, yes, I understand that we are all in competition for dollars and that you want to talk to a founder. Um, but let me also spotlight these other incredible voices of people who have experienced the work or who are on the front lines of the work and helping lift other people up along with them. Talk about the ability of nonprofits to change as needs change. One of the, the criticisms of, of old-fashioned nonprofits is that they were really there or they became staid and they were there to perpetuate themselves, whereas the newer versions that you're talking about need to be a lot more nimble, not only in terms of the work they do, as you've been talking about, but even adapting to the changing needs of, of, of what's happening out there. Yeah, in, in, in the book, I, I, I talk about the importance of the testing process. So I'm really focused on early stage organizations in the very beginning and looking at how they test their ideas through um, a process of what I talk about in the book as design thinking, this model of testing, measuring, and learning, um, and, and constantly being in that iterative format in, um, in order to improve on programs as you go. And this is where we get back to impact measurement and the importance of impact measurement, not only to prove that what you're doing is working, but also to improve the programs that you're, you're using to make a difference in people's lives. And so, in my research, I found that the organizations that tend to scale more quickly tend to have this very um, integrated testing process in their models so that they're not just innovating in the beginning, but that they're constantly innovating as they grow. One social entrepreneur that I, I interviewed said so wisely that the best nonprofit organizations fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And we all can think of these organizations that have their solution and are going to go with it. And, you know, that's, that's it. <laughs> um, but that's really not what the world needs because as we know, problems change and um, conditions change, political climates change. And so we need nonprofits to be nimble and to be honest with themselves about what is working and what isn't so that they can actually solve the problems that they're trying to tackle. What, if any, pushback has there been in the nonprofit world among people that were used to doing it the old way and that suddenly may care a lot but are facing a very different environment that we've been talking about? It's a good question, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I wrote my book, Social Startup Success. Um, I myself founded a, a small nonprofit in San Francisco with a group of women called Spark, and we engaged millennials in gender equality uh, philanthropy. And so we were growing as an organization um, month after month. We were doubling our revenue very early on. And then we hit this wall and we couldn't get past the wall. We couldn't get the capital that we needed to grow. Um, and I think that this, this is a problem that I've realized that a lot of nonprofits face, that a lot of nonprofits 
Um, in fact, two-thirds of nonprofits in the United States are $500,000 or below in revenue, and many of them are small, community-based nonprofits and should stay that way, and that's fine, and, and don't have a plan to grow. But many organizations have amazing models that should should grow and should um, be accessing so many of these resources. And so, you know, my answer to that question is that I wrote this book as a way to to show these nonprofits that are stuck um, and can't get over that revenue hump uh, to be able to say, here's what all the organizations that are getting funded are doing, and this is how this is the language that they're using to get funded, um, and this is what they're saying when they go into uh, the offices of foundations to um, to make a pitch, and so my hope is that the book will be somewhat of an equalizing force both for nonprofits who might be operating in sort of an old-fashioned way um, and and would need some modernizing in terms of the way that they do their work. Um, But also um, organizations that are uh, that have community-based leaders who, you know, might not have a traditional education. One of the things that I learned in my interview process is that there's a huge Ivy League bias in, in the nonprofit sector. Um, that there's, you know, in a lot of my stories as I was writing the book, I was saying so-and-so graduated from Harvard or Stanford or Yale and started their organization. And I love my Stanford students and they have amazing ideas, but we also need to be funding community-based leaders who have more of a connection to the problems that we're trying to solve in this world and who may have lived experience that is more valuable than any Ivy League degree when it comes to the problems that they're solving. So this is something that I think is something we need to think about as nonprofit sector. And my hope is that uh, that books like Social Startup Success can help rise people up and give them the education they need to have those conversations in uh, foundations as well. Given the entrepreneurial nature of, of this today, are you seeing a greater nexus between the business community and the nonprofit community because they're speaking the same language more than they have in the past? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, more and more nonprofits, and I see this with my my students at Stanford, are actually starting as for profits. That that there 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 seem to be less and less limitations um, or or firm lines that um, between the nonprofit world and the for profit world. If you look at uh, Priscilla and Chan and Mark Zuckerberg's foundation, they got, there was a lot of controversy because they set it up as an LLC, um, which is very new, um, and a new, a new way of doing things. Um, but I think it's really indicative of this new wave of thinking about social change, that social change can be made in, as an impact investor, investing in companies that are um, making a difference in people's lives, um, as well as the nonprofit sector. I think where we have to be careful is to recognize that there's always going to be this tension between mission and profit and we have to be honest about uh, what we're trying, what kind of return we're trying to get. So let me give you an example with Hot Bread Kitchen, the organization that I mentioned earlier doing 
job training for low-income women in Harlem. When Jessamine Rodriguez started that organization, she was sure that she was going to have this model that would allow her to sustain the organization 100% based on the sales of the baked goods. So she was going to sell the bread and the profits from that bread was going to were going to sustain the nonprofit training programs for the women. As she started the program, she realized that Yes, she probably could cut corners and figure out how to make that 100% sustainable, but that business wasn't actually going to solve all of her problems because she needed to maybe have the training program go on a little bit longer than was maybe profitable in order for the women to be well-trained. Or by collecting philanthropic dollars, she could make the program better by allowing them to have childcare for the women so that they could um, actually participate in the program and not worry about who was going to be taking care of their kids. So there is a role for philanthropic dollars, and I think we need to be careful when we use language like business can solve our problems um, because the reality is that so many of these social problems that we're solving um, are, are problems that where there have been market failures. So if it were profitable to bring clean water to the 800 million people in this world who need it, I think Coca-Cola might have done it a long time ago. And so we need to recognize that and, um, and also recognize the role of philanthropic capital and nonprofit work in solving social problems too. And finally, when you talk about that, it's a reminder that these issues are not just localized, but global in nature, and that this same trend is happening throughout the world. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about social entrepreneurship as if it's this thing that we have invented in the United States, but I mean, social entrepreneurs have um, been uh, all over the world and um, have been making a difference in solving community-based problems uh, everywhere from India to Africa to um, China um, for centuries even. So um, I think that we have a lot to learn from other community-based leaders around the world um, in addition to what we have to offer them as well. Kathleen Kelly Janis, her book is Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. Kathleen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great.